when nearly 400 education ministers and teacher representatives from around the world converged on Wellington for the International Summit on the Teaching Profession, they wanted to find ways to improve their education systems. They also debated how to narrow the achievement gaps between rich and poor students. But were there any lessons to be learned for this country? I'm at the Pofiri marking the beginning of the International Summit on the Teaching Profession and hundreds of delegates are being welcomed onto Te Papa's Marae. The summit is run by the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development and the Global Federation of Teacher Unions, Education International. Over the next two days the 25 nations attending the event will swap ideas about how to improve their education systems with a focus on the achievement gap between rich children and poor children. I'm John Gerritsen, and in this insight, I'll be asking education experts from around the world what they're doing to improve their school systems. Something I'll be mentioning a lot in this programme are the OECD's PISA tests. PISA stands for the Programme for International Student Assessment, and every three years it tests 15-year-olds in reading, science and maths. The tests are the main point of comparison for the countries at the summit. They want to do better in it and also reduce the gap between their students from poor families and those from rich families. The Pofiri opening the summit has just finished and I've now got five minutes with the Secretary for Education for the United States, Arnett Duncan. The United States is the single biggest country represented at the summit, but its education system performs only around the OECD average. There are never any simple answers. I don't like when people try and do uh, focus on one thing. It's much more complicated than that. But a couple, couple different parts of the strategy are hugely important. One, finding, identifying great teachers and great principals and making sure they work in underserved communities. Um, secondly, making sure that students have access to rigorous classes, that classes aren't dumbed down. Uh, third, making sure that there's a richer way of what I call after-school programming, wraparound services, programming for parents, where schools truly become the centers of the community. And I also think technology could be a great equalizer. You put all those things together, which are easier said than done, then you can really close what I call the opportunity gap. So you talk there about um, opportunities for, for teachers, identifying good teachers, getting them in the right schools. Is that about paying them more money and incentivising? I, I think that's a piece of it, but um, first of all, I think it's trying to find the teachers who have a real heart and a real passion for this work. And there's nothing easy about going to the most you know, underserved communities. Um, I absolutely believe they should receive more money for that. But no, no teacher goes into education to make a million dollars. And uh, the, the compensation is a piece of it, making sure they have great principles, um, making sure they're well supported, making sure there's a team of teachers working together. And I always think teams have both uh, you know, rookies and young guns coming in and then also experienced veterans as well. And when you sort of put all those things together, then it starts to become a package instead of opportunities. I think it can be very, very appealing uh, for teachers. But far too often, I'll say uh, in the United States, the children in the communities who need the best, who deserve the best, get the least. And that for me is just fundamentally unfair and that's the, the status quo that we're trying to challenge. Well, I've just had my five minutes with Anna Duncan and now I'm heading upstairs into Papa to go and meet members of the German delegation. Now, this should be particularly interesting because Germany has managed to improve its standing in the international PISA test for 15-year-olds and uh, decrease the gap between rich and poor. So it seems they've got 
some of the answer. First, I met Udo Michelik, the General Secretary of the Standing Conference of Education Ministers for Germany's 16 lander or states. He says Germany realised it had to improve its education system after the OECD's PISA tests of 15-year-olds in 2000. We thought we, we are very best in the world, but then PISA showed in 2000, oh, we are not that good, uh, that we experienced, and the gap between the, the well-doing and the worst-doing uh, was very uh, big. So we developed a long-term strategy in education policy since then, developing teaching, developing schools, uh, developing curricula, and setting standards in school, and that's, I think that's one of the secrets in Germany, to develop nationwide standards. What happens if your schools or your teachers don't meet those standards? There is actually no sanctions. But Marlis Tepper, the head of the German teacher union, the Gewerkschaft at Sehom und Wissenschaft, tells a different story. Uh, when we had the PISA shock or uh, the um, PISA waking up call, when we were so bad, we, we didn't believe that Germany could be so bad, then uh, we recognized that the questions the pupils had to answer were not like we did. Now the teachers know the, the questions and they teach to the test. That's what some teachers think. I was really expecting they might have some concrete answers there, but to hear that they may just be um, improving themselves by teaching to the test uh, perhaps is not what we're looking for. Another European country that's improved a lot in PISA is Poland. It's moved ahead of New Zealand in maths, science and reading and has less of a gap between its rich and poor. It's also passed Germany on those measures. Um, my name is Ewa Durek and I'm a Deputy Secretary for the Ministry of Education in Poland. I don't uh, think we have many secrets. <laughs> we try to do our best. Uh, what we do is we introduce a national curriculum six years ago and it is the base uh, for the teachers all over the country but they build their own programs. Eva Dudak says the new curriculum has a different focus. Now what we do we um, define the effects we want to achieve for each student. So when you say effects, so what do you mean by that? What students can do, not, not what students know. What can be the practical use of uh, the knowledge? What are the skills students get after certain s stage of uh, level of uh, education? And, and that's paid off? Probably. But Poland's population is much less diverse than New Zealand's and its reforms sound a lot like changes that have already been made in this country. And despite their improvements, Germany and Poland are only a little better than New Zealand in terms of equity between rich and poor. So my next stop is PISA's top-ranked English-speaking nation, Canada. Jeff Johnson is the Minister of Education for Alberta and Canada, and I've been really interested in talking to you uh, because Canada has quite a diverse population, I understand, and you've got a high-performing education system and a good degree of equity. So I'm thinking there's probably quite a bit New Zealand can learn from you. So basically, what's your secret? Yeah, we're, we're very proud of our results, but like everyone else, we know that we can always do better. We have one of the countries that we believe is the most diverse. And when you look at the PISA tests, these international tests, we're one of the jurisdictions that have the most amount of students writing those tests or taking those assessments in a language other than their native tongue. And yet uh, the gap between performance of uh, you know the low socioeconomic and the high is, is one of the smallest gaps. So we do have one of the most equitable systems, and um, we're proud of that fact. How do you achieve it, though? 
there's one caveat to that. Uh, the performance of our Aboriginal community is certainly uh, different than the performance of our non-Aboriginal community uh, in general across the country. But I think you know one of the one of the reasons that we do well is because of the choice that's in the system and the flexibility that we try to build into the system for local school boards and local teachers and principals and superintendents to make uh, decisions, relevant decisions locally with uh, how they spend their money. But I think the, the choice in terms of where parents can send their kids and how they can educate them is kind of a foundational piece in Canada that I think in particular Alberta, my province, has served us well. But what do Canadian teachers have to say? Uh, my name's Diane Wallace-Junk and I'm president of the Canadian Teachers Federation. Well, I think in Canada there's been a long-term commitment to funding for the education system. There's been a lot of attention to trying to work with all the students and to be effective with all students. We've followed inclusive practices for decades now and uh, have really appreciated the commitment of governments to funding the education system appropriately according to the needs of students. And I think teachers also work very hard to um, differentiate their instruction, to really work to meet the needs of individual students. Your good record in equity, how much of that is, is because of the education system and how much is it because your society's already got a high level of equity, perhaps in other areas such as you know, income disparities and health, health outcomes? Well, we have seen um, some growth in inequality, income inequality in our country over the last couple of decades. However, I think as a basic principle of our society, that sense of the, the social, of the community together, and of working to meet the needs of the entire society has been very strong in our country for a long time. So that may well contribute to it. It's not, as you're right, it's not just a matter of education. It is broader than that in terms of health care and uh, other kinds of social supports. While it sounds like Canada might have some lessons for New Zealand, the summit also heard the view of the Global Federation of Teacher Unions, Education International, about some options it would be best not to follow. Its General Secretary, Fred Van Leeuwen, gave this warning to fellow delegates at the conference. We are in the middle of a great global debate about the future of education involving two educational visions. The first one is grounded in the understanding that without highly qualified, self-starting and motivated teachers, there is little chance of all children getting the education they deserve. The second vision is sustained by the illusion that education can be delivered more cheaply and efficiently by the private sector, preferably with fewer, less qualified staff, and a liberal dose of one-size-fits-all online programs. Fred van Leeuwen doubts New Zealand will go in the wrong direction, though he does have some concerns. There are, I must say, a couple of worrisome developments in this country. I understand that uh, there are four or five charter schools, I believe. Well, we think that's not the answer. In countries where they have experimented with charter schools, we've seen only bad results. In terms of the PISA scale, they dropped. Sweden is a good example. The United Kingdom is a good example. The United States is a good example. Well, bad examples, actually. Um, definitely examples that New Zealand should not uh, follow. Fred Van Leeuwen is also worried the government's reform of the Teachers' Registration and Disciplinary Body, the Teachers' Council, will put non-teachers on the new organisation, the Education Council. 
I think such a council should be exclusively composed of representatives of the teaching profession. Yeah, because one of the problems that teachers are facing is all, all these experts that come and tell them how to do their work. Yeah? You don't need to tell a teacher how to teach when he's properly trained, when he's subject to quality professional developments. You don't need to bring in all these outsiders instructing them which step to take every hour of the day. The other partner behind the summit is the OECD, and its delegation was led by its Director for Education and Skills, Barbara Ischinger. Effective partnerships are key to providing the opportunities for all children to succeed in their schooling. Dr Ischinger says education systems face three main challenges, as she explained to me during a break in the proceedings. Question number one is whether a system can really attract and retain qualified teachers in uh, schools with great needs. Number two is how to really achieve equity in a very devolved system, education system. And then also how to make sure that the individual needs of students are being met. Barbara Ischinger highlighted some of the approaches used in other countries. For example, partnering successful schools with poor performers. In Shanghai, it is a pride of the principal and the head teacher of a well-performing school to also share his her knowledge with schools which have a low performance. And uh, sometimes, like the deputy uh, principal or deputy headmaster, they would really be in service for a year or two in uh, such a low-performing school until they have added value and really increased the performance of this school. She also likes the idea of giving teacher education a higher profile in universities. Universities which do this best are universities in Finland because they equip teachers to be researchers and then society regards them as being real academicians and they continue to do research with their students, with other colleagues and they never stop learning and they remain curious and they want to look for new models of teaching mathematics well and uh, see how they can motivate their students to really become curious and wanting to learn lifelong. The OECD's other leader at the summit was its Deputy Director for Education and Skills, Andreas Schleicher. He's best known for his role coordinating the organisation's PISA test and he says high-performing school systems tend to have high expectations. You can see that in the policy approaches. You can also see that in the mindset of children. You can see that in those, particularly in East Asia, uh, when we ask children, you know, what makes you successful in mathematics? Those children consistently tell you. It's an issue of if I, if I, if I try hard, if I study well, I trust my teachers are going to help me and I'm going to be successful. If you see countries that are not doing so well, you typically students say, well, it's all a matter of talent, of the context where I come from, of the money that I have. In the former case, school is helping everyone to leverage their talent. And I think that's a real uh, differentiator. The second part, of course, is, you know, how schools are resourced. You see that in high-performing countries and equitable countries, 
the system is very good in attracting the most talented teachers into the most challenging classrooms and getting great principals for tough schools. That's not the case in the majority of countries. In the majority of countries, resourcing is regressive. You know, you come from a better neighborhood, you're going to get a better teacher in a better school, and you come from a poorer neighborhood, you're penalized twice. You know? Part is your own background and part is the poorer resourced school. And I think changing that balance, tying resources to the challenges, is one of the things that we can learn how to do. Of the countries and territories represented at the summit, the one with the highest PISA score and highest level of equity between rich and poor is China's special administrative region, Hong Kong. Hong Kong Secretary for Education, Eddie Ng, explained their system while at the Festival of Education, an event held on Wellington's waterfront at the same time as the summit. He says the region's schools and universities have been in a state of non-stop reform for nearly 14 years. We encourage more assessment than just examination to change the whole ecology of learning and, and schooling and uh, teaching. Not only that, we also uh, widen the whole curriculum. It will not be just a traditional grammar type of focus. We actually have a variety of programs, including additional languages, really going for students be able to, based on their interests, their strength, and their preferences in picking up their own stream of uh, study. Instead of uh, old days, uh, early in the stage, you already need to choose either science or arts or social subjects. But Eddie Ng says there's still room for improvement. If you look at teachers are most important factor in the whole teaching and learning. And uh, in Korea, as well as in Finland, uh, teachers as a profession receive a very high level of regards and respect from the community. This is something we need to learn from. In terms of uh, the other part of excellence, I believe we should continue the, uh, taking education as investment rather than expenditure. That's what we are doing in Hong Kong. Our budget this year would be almost like a US uh, 10 billion US dollar and uh, a 5.3% growth uh, just uh, versus last year. That's very significant. What I'm trying to say is so uh, the government has to act in terms of real investment, serious about investment. Hong Kong was not the only education high flyer I managed to track down. Also at the festival was Finland's representative to the summit, the ambassador to Australia and New Zealand, Pasi Patakalia. Now I keep hearing Finland mentioned when I talk to delegates to the summit about who's got answers to raising achievement and narrowing gap between rich and poor. Mm. Now I realise you're not an education um, specialist, but how has Finland achieved this? And you know, are you still getting that level of, of, of interest from other countries and, and what your secrets are? Well, we do uh, get a level of interest from other countries. Of course, there are other high performers. If you look at the so-called PISA study, for example, many of them are in this wider region of the Asia-Pacific, like you know, Singapore, Shanghai, and others. Well, uh, you know, we haven't, of course, set out to build our education system to meet some PISA requirements or something like that. We've, you know, we've done it for ourselves as, as part of the, of the development of our society. And I think one of the key values from the very beginning has been uh, appreciation of education. People want education. People want the kids to have an education, uh, a good education. And, and the government has responded to that with a philosophy that we do offer uh, 
education, good quality education to all. I mean, the, it's a principle of equality and equity. So the ability to pay is not a real consideration. Pasi Patakalia agrees Finland's high level of equity in education reflects a high level of equity generally in its society. And he attributes a lot of Finland's success to its culture. We are actually historically a Protestant country and the Lutheran Church has always placed a high value on, on teaching people. So we've uh, always prized education and we have prized teachers because without good teachers you really cannot achieve much. And I think teaching is a well-respected profession in Finland. I mean, they're not terribly well paid, they're not poorly paid, but it's the, the pay is not the motivation per se or most of them, I would say, certainly not. We are in a situation where there are many more applicants to receive teacher education, teacher preparation, uh, than there are spots. That's a reflection that teaching as a profession is respected in society, and I think that's a key ingredient in, in our relative success. Well, I'm just outside Parliament now. It's a bit of a windy day, and the NZDI, the Union for primary and early childhood staff is holding a rally. Oh, now we get and it sounds like the president of the American Federation of Teachers, Randy Weingarten, is addressing them. Randy Weingarten told me the most important thing about the teaching summit is that it brings education ministers and teachers' representatives together. Regardless of what tensions abound, it is absolutely imperative, um, maybe in spite of the tensions, it is absolutely imperative to have the people who represent government and the people who represent those who do the work talking with each other, because that is the only way they talk to each other and come up with solutions together that you can create confidence in a public education system. And that public education system, be it in New Zealand or in America, is what is absolutely essential um, to create a promise of opportunity for our next generation of children. But Randy Weingarten senses that relationship could be a lot better in New Zealand. The educators in this country are amazing people and they really need to be more respected than they are. Um, and I would hope that the um, Minister of Education, who very much wanted this summit here, would actually listen more to the educators and their representatives, as well as those around the table, about what are the positive, proactive ways to actually help kids achieve. So you, you get the impression that that communication between government and teaching profession isn't strong enough here? I get the impression that it is very, 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 very stressed. Back inside the summit, the Education Minister, Hekia Parata, says the government is working closely with teachers. But she did not give away any detail on the ideas she's taking from the summit. However, some of the school principals observing the event were more specific. Australian principal Steve Breen from Perth says there was an emphasis on teacher quality. They're talking about collaboration at the school level, uh, professional not taking teachers out of their classrooms but actually using what's happening in schools to do that. Now of course there's resourcing and all of those sorts of things but if you look at all the research it's basically talking about teacher quality. How do you actually improve the teaching? 
David Langford from Awapuni School in Gisborne says the gathering of experts only stressed the importance of preschool education. For me it's the, uh, around early childhood and the importance of early childhood experiences. Uh, it's also for schools uh, to becoming more inclusive in the way that they adapt to students' needs. So I think that's coming through in quite a few jurisdictions around the world and that's a common view that we've got to do something about that. And former area school principal John Garner says the summit showed cooperation is key. The major thing that I've picked up is the importance of collaboration and cooperation, that we're not going to achieve anything significant for children if all the people involved, all the adults involved, don't sit down and work things out together. Is there a sense that in other countries the adults are sitting down and working together? I, I think the fact that this is the fourth conference they've held where teacher leaders and government leaders have got together is a significant step forwards. But they've got to start achieving results too, I think, not just meeting. The summit's come to an end and the delegates are enjoying their post-conference drinks. Over the past two days I've managed to talk to people from all over the world, from Finland, from Hong Kong, from Canada. They've all had different ideas about ways of improving their education system and improving the equity in those systems, but none of them have had a silver bullet, or at least not one they've been willing to share with me. But there have been some common themes. Raising the quality of the teaching profession, increasing the amount of cooperation and sharing between schools and between teachers, and developing strong and positive relationships between governments and the associations and unions that represent teachers and principals. How well New Zealand reflects those characteristics is up for debate and it will be fascinating to see just what changes as a result of this summit over the next few years. I'm John Gerritsen, and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by Philip Atolli with technical production by Chris Keogh.